reading is taken from 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11, and it's on page 1227 in our Bibles. Page 1227. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is God's word. Uh, let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. If we've not met, lovely to, uh, to see you, have you with us this morning. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin together. Uh, Father, what a lovely prayer we've already just expressed that you would take our lives, renew, transform, change us so we are more like your son, Jesus Christ. And that is our prayer. Father, even if we wouldn't yet profess faith in him, we know that he's an attractive man. We'd like to become like him in many ways. So, Father, help us this morning. Would your spirit be at work, giving us uh, inside understanding and then changing us, changing us so we are indeed more like him. Amen. Now, what condition is your heart in, I wonder? You may not know. Um, but what condition is your heart in? Good to have some idea, I guess. Uh, probably once a week, I will um, haul myself onto a treadmill and uh, run a few kilometres. And inevitably, at some point during that process, uh, the silly machine will flash up at me, warning, warning, heart rate dangerously high, 170 BPM, change what you're doing. This is, you know, it doesn't go on and on, actually. It just, just says warning repeatedly and refuses to go away uh, for quite some minutes. Now, I don't know what you would do if you're on a treadmill and the machine says, warning, warning, your heart rate is dangerously high, slow down. For myself, I think silly machine and ignore it. <laughs> but of course, it does depend, doesn't it? If you are 
If you know you have a heart murmur, if you have angina or something, something like that, well, you take that warning seriously. You know that your heart is, uh, so it has a weakness. If you're Mo Farah and the machine flashes up, warning, warning, you sort of smile and say, do you know who I am? And, um, and you can feel free to ignore the thing because you're fairly confident that your heart is in a pretty good condition. So knowing how to hear the warning or how to hear the alarm, that makes a difference. You, you've got to know the state of your heart so you hear that rightly or know how to respond rightly. And there is a sense in which before we hear John's words here, we, we need to know the state of our hearts. So particularly verse 20, 21, or verse 21, let me highlight that one. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Great. So if your heart doesn't condemn you, feel free. You have confidence before God. Know that he accepts you. Um, know that uh, he's delighted with you. Just know that. If your heart doesn't condemn you, there is a little condition. Now, how do you hear that? I guess it will depend upon the state of your heart. Broadly, yeah, absurd caricature. But there's probably three conditions of heart in the room. There'll be the tender-hearted, who are often anxious. Does God accept me? Am I good enough? What does he think of what I've done today? I feel guilty. Am I guilty? And the tender-hearted, who often ask themselves uh, all sorts of questions. There'll be the hard-hearted, who never ask themselves any sort of questions, just presume that God will always accept them no matter what they do. So I'm a criminal, I'm a, I'm a cat burglar, I go out every night and steal TVs, but, you know, God accepts me. You know, because I'm fairly hard-hearted. I'm a man, I'm having an extramarital affair, but God accepts me, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm a mass murderer, God accepts me, it doesn't matter. You know, they'd be fairly hard-hearted if you really thought that. But you've got tender-hearted, hard-hearted... John would encourage us to be, I guess, his gospel-hearted, to know that you're a sinner, to know that you're a failure before God, but if you trust in Jesus Christ, he accepts you. And in the freedom that gives, now live for him. Come, confess your sin. Then walk away having done that with a smile, as we've done this morning, knowing, delighting that God accepts you. And get on with loving other people. You need to know the state of your heart. You have to have some self-knowledge. The heart is deceitful. The Bible will tell us elsewhere uh, above all things. Famously, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So you've got to ask some questions. And here John is wanting to help us do that. How can we um, more objectively assess the condition of our hearts? More objectively assess how God views us. If he is... Uh, if we should have confidence to come before him. Because these are big promises, verse 21. We can have confidence before God. And look how it goes on, verse 22. And receive from him anything we ask. Anything. It's wonderful, isn't it? To know you have confidence before God and receive anything you ask for. If your heart doesn't condemn you. So what is the state of your heart? You just need to explore that a little bit. And Johnny's going to give us some help as we do so. After a little break then, we're returning to this uh, letter of uh, 1 John. 
Uh, and we've said it's a letter written to Christians in the first century who are being a little bit disturbed. They're unsettled. Some have left their church, but keep bringing them up and saying, hey, losers, you're still at the church, aren't you? Uh, we've left. We've gone to a better church. Um, Jesus speaks to us directly. We don't need the apostles. We can ignore everything in the Bible. And he tells us we can live how we want, pretty much. We don't have to listen to all the old commands. We are better, superior, higher, uh, more exciting Christians than you. And John has written this letter to the church, saying, no, look, I want you to do two things. I want you to know with confidence that you're the real deal. You, you are wonderful Christian people. You, there's nothing you're missing. I want you to know that with confidence. Know for certain that you're loved and accepted by God. And I want you to secondly say no to the new kids on the block. No to their false Jesus. No to their idol that they've created. So those twofold purposes. And we've said, uh, just by way of reminder, Mark gives, uh, sorry, John gives three marks of genuine faith. And uh, three times he goes through the three of them in the letter. We have this is a certain cycle uh, to the letter of one John. So genuine Christians will obey the commands of God. They will love their brothers and sisters in church. And they will trust in the bodily death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Those three things, those three marks. And in this little section, we're back to uh, the second one, love for believers. Now, where we're building to really is this little section, verses 19 to 24, which is all about the heart and whether you can have confidence before the Lord. Um, So you see it, uh, just obviously pick it out, verse 19 Four times you get this little word, uh, the word for hearts, knowing that your heart is correct. It's the only time it comes up in the letter in this passage. You get it, verse 19. We need to set our hearts at rest, verse 20, when our hearts condemn us. Verse 20, God is greater than our hearts. Verse 21, if our hearts do not condemn us. So four times, just in these three verses, John is concerned, is your heart right before the Lord? Is it I want it to be. I want you to be really confident before God and have full assurance when you pray to him that you know he's delighted with you. I want you to know that, says John. And so here's some ammunition in verses 11 to 18 that you can take and address to your heart. We'll see a little later on. John sets up this sort of little picture, really. There's a courtroom. God is the judge. The heart is the the prosecuting counsel saying, you're not good enough for God. The Christian believer has to be the defense and say, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. You get this little courtroom scene. And so here in verses 11 to 18 is the, is the, the, the ammunition that the defense can use in its court case to say, no, I am fully right with God and I can come before him with confidence. So let's go through 11 to 18 and uh, then uh, we'll look at, try and spend a bit of time on uh, persuading our hearts that we're in right standing with the Lord. Let me break it out. It breaks down a bit like this, the text, I think. So verses 11 to 15, the world hates from envy. Verses 16 to 18, but Christians, they won't do that. They'll love sacrificially. And then we'll look at the heart. Okay, these first two things. First then, in verses 11 to 15, the world hates from envy. Verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. 
from the beginning of your Christian lives. You remember, we, we said this is very basic. Love one another. Love one another. That's very basic Christian living. But here's the negative, verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And then verse 13, don't be like the world, he'll say. Or uh, the false Christians who have left the church. Don't be like them. They hate from envy. Now, this is the first time you're joining us in this letter of 1 John. John deals very much in black or white. He's not a man for grey. He just sets it up uh, like this. And so again, he's going to say here, you're either, you either belong to the God, you either belong to God or you belong to the world. There's, there's no grey. It's black or white. The way John, indeed the whole of the Bible puts it, there are only really two ways to live. You either say to the Lord God, thy will be done, or you say, my will be done. I'm in charge. There are only two real ways of living. Thy will be done, you belong to God. My will be done. I'm in charge. You belong to the world, or the evil one. It's just another way John puts it. It's very black or white. And so he'll say, don't be like Cain. Why not? What did Cain do? Verse 12. He belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, I don't want to spend all our time going back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, if you read it, Cain, Cain and Abel, classic um, uh, uh, siblings, uh, who uh, the rivals. Uh, Cain, Cain goes through the motion spiritually. There's no such thing as church as them, but he's the sort of bloke who turns up dutifully. He sits there, yeah, very good, very good. He leaves, it has no impact upon his life. He goes through the motions spiritually. He really wants God just as a fairy godmother. Just to, uh, can I have yes, tinkle? Can I have yes, tinkle? He just, there's no real faith in Cain. So we're told uh, uh, that Abel, Abel trusts the Lord. Abel, the brother, he offers sacrifices by faith. Abel says, thy will be done, Lord, I trust you. Cain offers his sacrifices, but does it really only to get something? My will be done. And God blesses Abel, and Cain hates it. And you see, if you read Genesis 4, you see the, the spiral. Cain looks at his brother, and there's envy, and then there's bitterness, and then there's hatred, and then he murders him. And that's the spiral it goes through. Don't be like them, says John. And don't be like the false prophets. They've left the church. They've joined the world, verse 13. So don't be surprised that they dislike you. But, verse 14, by contrast, we... Christian believers know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Okay, fine, that's quite straightforward. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. You know, I may not get on particularly well with my siblings, but they're not on my hit list. I haven't um, hired a hitman. I'm, I'm all right. I'm not, you know, I'm not in danger of being like Cain. I'm a long way from Cain. Apart from John does the thing that Jesus does and just verse 15 raises the standard a little bit. Anyone who hates his brother, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. If you hold on to hatred, says John, are you really a Christian? You can't be. And of course, John, black and white. Most of us live somewhere in the grey and 
probably you know the instinctive reaction is yeah but um you know occasionally i'm pretty irritated with someone at church because let's be honest they're irritating and so therefore it's only natural that i'm irritated with mr irritating everyone is that's fine isn't it well i mean yes of course in one sense we make mistakes we live in the gray we do feel bitter towards people sometimes uh, but if you've been with this letter of 1 John, John's concern is which, which path are you walking? What, um, what is your habitual manner of life? Is it that, you know, you generally forgive people, but every now and again someone really riles you and you, oh, I'm really angry with them, but Lord, I'm sorry. I need to forgive them. I know I do. I don't find it easy, but I'm trying. Well, that's normal Christian living. But if you think to yourself, hmm, that person over there, what he said really wound me up. And I can't forgive him for that. I can't forgive him for that. Well, watch out, says John, if that's a sort of normal or common pattern. Or you look at someone in church and think, oh, I really resent them. God has given them the spouse, the family, the job. I resent everything they've got. Well, just be careful, says John, because if that's a normal way of thinking or a common way of thinking watch out watch out be careful there because the world hates from envy that's not what Christians do he says so the world hates from envy but um, let's push into the second Christians Christians love sacrificially which is verse 16 to 18 this is how we know what love is quite useful isn't it to know what love is lots of little definitions lots of songs but this is how we know what love is jesus christ laid down his life for us and so john says that if you're a christian you know that don't you i mean you know it in at least two senses that is love's pattern for you and it's love's power for you 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 know that that's the pattern of love love is sacrificing for the sake of others. As we say here, sacrificing materially for the sake of others. Depriving yourself so that another may flourish. Injuring yourself for the good of another. That is love. Real love always costs. Always costs. You go without something for the sake of someone else. So that's love's pattern. And uh, we get that. That's always appealing. People self-sacrifice. People admire and uh, esteem. In the midst of the chaos last week of um, what was called Superstorm Sandy, there was a one, I don't know if you read, of uh, John uh, Candelaria. Do you read about him? He's a guy on the the riverside uh, tower block, but he was safe and happily in his tower block. But as he looked out as the, uh, as the waters were gushing past at about seven foot, he saw a cab and a yellow cab and a man stuck inside it and he couldn't get out. And this cab was spinning 180s in the water and it was filling up and he could see. And he thought, well, better do something about that. So John Candelaria got out, waded out in this, uh, he's happily, uh, about six foot five. So, <laughs> um, it gave him some advantage, happily waded out, bust open this uh, cab door, pulled out this little apparently five-foot man who had no chance of getting out on his own, dragged him back into his apartment block and saved him. And everyone took lots of photos and said, you're a hero, mate, you're a hero, well done, John. 
And we admire that. That is love's pattern. We, we read that, we see that, we hear that, and think that's good. That's good. And of course, because supremely, it's just a little echo of the work of Jesus Christ, who didn't leave a tower, but left the glory of heaven to come down, not just to risk his life, but to give his life. That's the pattern of love. You know that, don't you, says John. If you've been a Christian for a while, you must know that. That's the pattern. That's what love looks like. Risk. Risking your life for the sake of others. But of course, it's not just a pattern of love. John means a bit more than that here. Verse 16, you know. This is, this is love's power to transform you as well. It's not just that we look back upon the cross and think, okay, sacrifice, save people's lives. That's good. So what we do is sacrifice and say, but that we're personally involved in that. That is a work that's done for you and me that moves us, as John has expressed it, from death to life. So the taxi driver, who didn't even give his name to John Candelaria, no one actually knows the bloke's name, but that taxi driver, it isn't just, he, doesn't he just sits here this week or wherever he's now living this week and thinks, well, I didn't really know what love was before, but I've seen the pattern of it now. I've seen that it involves risking your life for the sake of others. But that John Candelaria's act has changed him. He's gone literally from being in a place of death to life. He wouldn't be here this week were it not for that man's act of heroism. And John is talking in that sense here as well. If you're a Christian, you know, you know the love of Jesus Christ for you. You can see the model of it, the pattern, but also you know the difference it's made. It's changed you. You're not the same anymore. You know. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And so he sets us up this glorious picture. I mean, it's wonderful, isn't it? Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Now lay down your life for others. And in our best moments, we can think, yes, yes, I will do that. It was very easy to say that. And you, so John sort of soars on the heights, and then verses 17 and 18 sort of lands it very practically. What does it mean to lay down our lives for other brothers or sisters? Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. He essentially says, talk is cheap. Talk costs you nothing. I love you, really. That's nice. Show me, says John. Very striking, isn't it? Verse 17. If anyone in a church has material possessions and sees his, it's an inclusive word, brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, you can't be a Christian. How can the love of God be in him? By contrast, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Put your wallet where your mouth is, he says. Show me the money if you want to show me the love, essentially. It's very simple, very strong. So John is saying here, you cannot close your heart to the needy brother or sister and say that the, the love of God is in you. You can't come along to a church, but essentially emotionally live in a gated community and never open the door and get involved in people's lives because Christians give up their possessions to help brothers or sisters in need. 
in a costly way. Not just the crumbs from the table. But verse 16, this is what we know how, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. Christians will injure themselves for the good of others. Go without for the sake of others who are in need. It's just normal, he says. Now, I don't know about you, if you see this a lot, I, I am particularly privileged, I guess, in a church setting, because I see this all the time, or I hear about it all the time. I know when this takes place. I don't know everything, I'm sure, but I know lots of them. I know that there are many people here in church who have done all sorts of things, who have given interest-free loans to people in debt, 10 grand or more, and just let them pay it off over time, to, rather than paying exorbitant rates of interest. People have just given lump sums to those who are struggling to get them through a bad patch. People who have paid the mortgage for someone for a month when everything was in crisis. People who have given away cars to those in need. Some here will have um, hired staff for their firms that need them. Completely redundant on the payroll, as it were, or unnecessary, unfortunately, unnecessary on the payroll, but took them on because well, they just needed money. So just gave them work for a few months until they got another job. There are some here who have said to the elders, look, here, look, here's just a sum of money. I don't know who needs it. So I'm sure someone in church needs it. Just put it to good use. Some here who have paid for counselling sessions for people who couldn't quite afford it or contributed to them. For those who have gone through a trauma, been raped or abused. They said, look, you need to go to a counsellor. I can't afford it. I'll pay. All sorts of things. And I, I get to sort of hear of these more than most people do, I guess. I can't tell you how encouraging it is. You know someone's struggling, and the, oh, you've oh, you're, you've got a job, great. Who with? Oh, him at church. He doesn't need any more staff. Interesting. Interesting. Wonderful to hear. Wonderful to hear when those things happen. No, truth of course, working this out can be complicated sometimes. Uh, love is not daft. Love is highly intelligent. Uh, this sort of love. So. You know, if someone comes along, a fine art, someone who uh, desires to be a fine painter in fine arts and um, refuses to work, but spends three years just painting, 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 never works, just trying to break through, break through, never sells anything because uh, they're not actually any good. Um, uh, but and then the funny says, "Look, I'm I'm broke." Comes to someone at church, says, "I'm broke. You're wealthy. Give me money." One John says so. Well, you know what? At that point, love probably says you could get a job. Or love doesn't just get out the checkbook and write the check. Actually, at that point, love gets involved in the mess of someone's life and says, okay, let's sit down. Let's work out a budget. Love is intelligent. It's not daft. But working these things out can be complicated. If you want more on that, we did a whole series on this last January in the evening on uh, social justice and how do you, you know, priorities in this and how do you work it out. There's a whole sermon series we did topically last January. But love is highly intelligent. One of the simple principles, I guess you'd say here, verse 17, practically, if anyone sees brother or sister in need. So John is imagining there's a, there's a relationship here. You can see the brother or sister in need. So he's not here, it's a different topic, he's not here talking about there may be a church in India that is very poor that need that could do with the money. That's great, and you feel free. But he's not talking about that. He's saying if you, within a church setting, see a brother or sister in need and refuse help, 
oh, that's that's not right. Okay, know your heart. You could, you know, we could be daft about this and wander around church. You know, I can't see anyone who's in need, so I'm, you know, I, you know, uh, it is not, you know, someone's told you, know, you hear a story, you know, you know, so and so in the congregation, they're really struggling. Well, I've heard about them, but I haven't seen them, so you know, I mean, you could really, really, you could be daft if you wanted to be. But you see what John is saying. There's a relationship here, a brother or sister in church setting. So, of course, in one sense, this works best organically if there are relationships. It works best in small groups of whatever kind, home groups or central small groups. It works best in those sort of settings. Although we've never done this, and I do wonder if we need to establish some sort of formal deacon's fund at a church such as ours. And we'll talk about that more over the next uh, couple of months. The priority then is the brother you can see. And this should be encouraging to you. Uh, not quite in the same ballpark, but uh, a few years, a few, um, excuse me, a few months ago, about 20 months ago, I guess now, some will recall, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand had a terrible earthquake. Still, um, many of those there are about to, still got to have their houses demolished. The new cycle moves on, but a devastating earthquake. You know, we have strong links with one of the churches in the, in the city of Christchurch, New Zealand. The minister there used to be on the staff here. They're reciprocal links. When the, when the, uh, when the earthquake hit, um, wonderfully as a church, we're able to send out some emergency funding for those who were just homeless and phoneless and just couldn't, you know, the whole banking system was, has gone down. So we're able to send out just on top of regular giving 20,000 pounds that individuals in the congregation, uh, sent out. You know, one couple actually moved out there to go and practically help. Let me just read you just a little extract. The minister there, James de Costabardi, he sent a, a long letter, but, um, a little extract. The church family at Christchurch Mayfair has been absolutely brilliant. The support in prayer and extremely generous practical provision has been first order. And at times early on here, I cried with gratitude for everything people over there in the UK had done. Um, Matt, you can be proud of them. Tell them that it is a deep work of God in their lives. It has certainly made us here in Christchurch look forward to being with Christ and his people forever. Who would not want to be there in heaven if that is what his people are like here? That's really what John is saying. So if you, if you sacrificially give for the sake of others, that is a sign that God is at work in your life. So be encouraged by that. That's his point. Be encouraged. Let's do that then. Uh, last little thing. Our hearts need persuading of our actions. What do I mean by that? Verses 19 to 24. Let's read them. Verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth, genuinely Christians, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Now, let me slow down. We need to read this carefully. This then, verse 19, referring back to verse 18, love in action. So verse 18 Love, not with words or tongue, but with actions and, and in truth. If you're loving actively, if you're sacrificing for the sake of brothers and sisters, verse 19, this then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, verse 20, the scenario is the Christian who sits with their head in their hands and says, how can God love me? 
How can God accept me? I am so rotten. I am appalling. How on earth could God love someone such as me? John says, look, put your heart at rest. Don't despair like that. Here's how you put your heart at rest. rest. Consider how you have loved other people. Verse 18. Consider how practically you have loved others. Look back over the last few months, over the last year, and think how you've behaved. Now set your hearts at rest. Verse 19. That's, no, it's not. It's a little overly passive. It's literally persuade your hearts, convince your heart, argue with your heart until you've won. So again, here's the picture. God is the judge in the courtroom. Our hearts sometimes say, oh, you're rubbish as a Christian, aren't you? You're rubbish. And Joseph says, have none of that. Have none of that. Say, no, look back. Look over the last year or so. Look at how I've treated other Christians. I love them. A cost to myself. So heart, you can just shut up, actually. And I have full confidence before the Lord. That's the scene. Now, if that strikes you as a slightly fallible method of assurance, because, well, my heart's a bit deceptive and I can't forget what I've done for other people. I sometimes forget what I've done for other people. Well, okay. John will go on to say, verse 20, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Don't panic. God will make an accurate assessment upon your life, even if you can't remember anything. Trust him. But in verse 21, this is meant to be assuring to us that one of the wonderful benefits of loving loving other Christians is assurance, verse 21. So dear friends, if you've been through this process, you've persuaded your heart that actually you do love other people, verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. If our hearts don't condemn us because we do love others in action and in truth, then we have confidence before God. Verse 22, we'll pray with confidence. Be really encouraged. There's a sense in which the passage moves up to this because it goes a bit like this. So verse 18, if you love one another, you can have confidence. Then you'll pray with confidence because you obey, because you love one another. So it has a great impact upon our assurance. Now we kind of get this in practical living. So the the young child has a play date at a friend's house. I don't know, the preschooler or early schooler has a play date and uh, goes to a friend's house and behaves appallingly, just appallingly, pulls the hair, puts bubblegum in the hair, rubs it in, paint all over the neighbor's table, just uh, terrible. And then, but it feels a bit hungry, so looks, uh, terrible child, looks to mother and says, can I have a chocolate, please? But doesn't do so with any great confidence because knows fully well that mother is very annoyed with them. And they've behaved appallingly. So it's very uncertain. Scenario B, child goes, golden child. Play date, other parent says, your child is the best behaved child I've ever met in the whole world. And child thinks, I'm a bit hungry. And to burst in, mummy, can I have a chocolate? Just with full confidence and ask with confidence now. And, and gets it. But does the child receive a chocolate purely because of how they, of the merit of their behavior. No, look, children get chocolates because their parents are kind and give them things they, you know, kind of shouldn't do. Parents have chocolates in their bag and, you know, they're kind, they're kind. But does the behavior have an impact? Yes. 
Because in the first scenario, there's no confidence. In fact, there's sort of, I'm probably not going to get this, am I? In the second scenario, there's full confidence. And John is saying that really, when you come and pray, if you know that you're right with the Lord, if you know you're living rightly, loving other people, you'll pray with confidence. If you know that actually you're all over the place, you're immoral, and um, there are people you should help, but you just can't be bothered, your prayers will be feeble. You'll barely bother. We get that. That's what he's talking about. Now let's draw back and conclude. What, what do you do when your heart says to you, condemned, guilty, useless Christian, hopeless Christian? What do you do with that? Well, two things. One, first, John would say, review the evidence. Is that true? Sometimes you've got to review the evidence. A few years ago, uh, Kerry, my wife, uh, was in hospital for a couple of months, had to have her blood, you know, uh, blood pressure taken several times a day. I remember on one occasion happened to be there, a new nurse came in, trainee nurse came in, took blood pressure, it's X over Y, uh, at which point Kerry said, hmm, are you sure? I think technically I'd be dead. <laughs> Do you want to take that again? Okay, sometimes, you know, the evidence, you need to review the evidence. And that's what John is saying here. If your heart says condemned, you're useless Christian. You don't care. You know, how can God like you? First, consider, he says here, how you treat other Christians. Do you love them? The encouragements I find here are, one, uh, John expects Christians to have wobbles. He expects it's very normal in the Christian life to ask the question, could God really love me? Really? He expects that that's the case. But secondly, he expects Christians to be able to sit back and review how they treat others and think, do you know what? I love that woman at church. And I, you know, gave, I went out of my way for her. And in truth, if I were not a Christian, she would just wind me up enormously and I would never do anything for her. In fact, I'd probably mock her and stab her in the back. He expects Christians to be able to do that. To take a step back, review and think, no, actually God has changed me. I treat people differently to how I did before. Don't review over the last 24 hours, the last week, the last month. Do it over a good block of time because we all ebb and flow. But he expects that. And then secondly, if you, want, if you really get yourself in a tiz, and you go, I can't work out what my heart is saying or how I'm behaving. Well, at some point, every Christian needs to turn back a page to chapter 2, verse 1. We all need to do this at some point. Turn back to, turn back to chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here in chapter 3, John is saying, I want you to be assured that you're genuine Christians. And actually, do you know what? One way you can do that when you're feeling guilty is just to look at how you've treated other people. After that, you just get yourself so wound up in the tears that you just can't do it. Well, don't. Take a step back and say, I have one who speaks in my defense. I'm a Christian and I trust that Jesus Christ died in my place and so I am right before the Father. And then get on with loving other people. But before you hear this, do you see, you do need to know a little bit about your heart. Whether you're tender-hearted. And feel verse 20 all the time. Oh, God condemns me, God condemns me. If you're tender-hearted, you'll need to go through this process a lot. If you're hard-hearted, you may need to hear... Um, 
verse 17. You have no pity on others? What are you doing? At some point, we'll always need to remember we have an advocate before the Father. But John is writing this so that we're assured, so we have confidence. He says, look, normal Christian living, you wobble, you think, oh, I don't know how God thinks about me. But normally Christians can look at how they've lived their lives and say, do you know what, I do love people who are awkward, who are odd, who annoy me, and I put myself out for them. I give to my detriment for their good. Huh. God must be at work in my life. Or as Costa wrote from New Zealand, that is a deep work of God in the lives of people. So that should be of comfort to us, says John. Jesus has loved you, now love one another. Let me lead us in prayer. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that he is indeed, uh, of course, he's the pattern for what love is like, supremely sacrificing himself at enormous cost for our good. Thank you that every Christian knows that that is a transforming power at work in our lives as well. That we do, increasingly as the years go on, live that way as that work of Jesus Christ becomes ever more apparent, ever more real to us. So please, would we look to him as our model? Would we look to him knowing that he's changed us? And then would we love one another? Amen. Uh, let me briefly mention, if, um, if this sort of whole area, you know, the, what do I say to my heart? You know, my conscience feels guilty. How do I relate to that? How do I think about that? Uh, this, it was reviewed in the, uh, the church magazine, but this is a terrific book. Uh, Pure Joy, Rediscover Your Conscience by Christopher Ash. Uh, he's not here today, so it's easy to praise it. Um, uh, it is a terrific book on the role of the conscience in the Christian life. When to listen to it, when to ignore it, how to reform your conscience so it's more biblical. It is terrifically helpful, practical, honest, real. And uh, I think it's on the bookstore, so should um, get, grab hold of one of them if that's a big issue.